1: a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Janie Chang about her third novel, The Library of Legends. It's 1937, and the Japanese have occupied China. In the city of Nanjing, the students at Minghua University evacuate, with the support of selected faculty and staff. Each person in the convoy receives a single volume from a 500-year-old collection known as The Library of Legends. As they set off on foot to reach their destination, a thousand miles to the west, the tales in the library intersect with their lives in ways both unpredictable and consequential, for the students and for China. September twentieth, 1937, Nanjing, China. The approaching aircraft were too far away for Leon to tell whether they were Chinese or Japanese. A moment later, she didn't need to guess. The spiraling wail of sirens churned the air. Then the bombs began falling, like beads slipping off a necklace. She had been on her way to the train station. She had gotten off the rickshaw to buy a steamed bun for breakfast. Now she stood outside the bakery, as though rooted to the pavement, uncertain what to do. The nearest air raid shelter was two blocks away, across from the railway station, its entrance already besieged. Even if she were willing to abandon her wicker suitcase, she would never reach the shelter in time. A strong hand gripped her arm and yanked her through the bakery door. Get to the back room, the baker growled. But she shook her head and dashed out, struggling back with the heavy suitcase. She had to save her bucks. Inside, the baker and his wife were throwing damp cloths over trays of buns. He pointed to a storage room built against the back of the kitchen, sacks of flour stacked against one wall. The couple joined four small children squeezed together against the sacks. Leanne hesitated, then slid her wicker suitcase under a work table. But before she could run to the storage room, a shrill whistling pierced her eardrums, followed by the sound of explosions. The floor shuddered. Next, she heard the sharp rhythmic report of anti-aircraft guns. There was a roar of sound, and then the world went silent. And now, please join me in welcoming Janie Chang.
0: Hi, Janie. Thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. (laughs)
1: As I mentioned in the introduction, this is your third novel. All three are set in twentieth century China. How did you get into writing fiction?
0: Wow, a better question might be what took you so long? <laughs> so I'm one of those people who spent more time daydreaming about writing a book than actually doing it. My degree is in computer science, and it was a wonderful career track for about twenty five years but And then my mother got dementia, and we had to move her into care, and it just meant that every time I visited her, I would see all these people, and I wondered, you know, how many of these people were regretting not having done, not having tried to make their dream come true? So that was back in 2011, and I signed up for a creative writing program, and that's how it all started. Tell us a bit about Three Souls, your first novel. Well, so, Three Souls, the story behind it is one that I always knew would be the, my first novel. And it's, the story is narrated by the ghost of a young woman who has just died. And while she was alive, she was, you know, the daughter of a wealthy, educated family, but she felt trapped between obedience to her family and passion. And now that she's dead, she must find a way to atone for the death of her lover or remain trapped in the afterlife. And it's actually based on the story of my grandmother, who, you know, lived that sort of a life, um, minus all the dramatic embellishments, that she was from a very wealthy, privileged family, and she was married off to um, my grandfather, who lived in a small rural town, with um, not a lot of sophistication and culture. And I always think about, you know, how sad that was for her.
1: And you went on to write a second novel, Dragon Springs Road, uh, which is set around the time of the collapse of the imperial dynasty in China.
0: What was the inspiration for that
1: novel and how would you summarize it?
0: So it's interesting how research um, kind of sparks ideas for you. And in this particular case, I came across some uh, work about the sad lives of biracial orphans in early 20th century Shanghai. I mean, they were unwanted by the Chinese. They were unwanted by the Europeans. You know, um, both races were embarrassed by these, I don't know, tainted creatures, as they were sometimes known. And so there's very little documentation about them. In effect, they were swept under the carpet of history. So, Dragon Springs Road opens in a courtyard house where a little girl wakes uh, wakes up to understand that she's been abandoned by her mother, and as she grows up, she realizes that her life is going to be very difficult because she's Eurasian, and the story follows her life through the good and bad experiences. Um, It's her determination to find her mother again, to find love, and to find her place in this world. And what drew you to the story that became the Library of Legends? So, again, um, family history. (laughs) Uh, A real chapter in in Chinese history was the evacuation of Chinese universities to the interior of China at the start of the Sino-Japanese War, where entire campuses, you know, basically packed up and started tramping their way west Some of them walked a 1,000 miles, and it's very much based on my father's own travels because he was with the University of Nanjing when they had to evacuate. And then I also came across um, memoirs from students from another university who actually did carry a very valuable um, library treasure with them on their escape and so that sort of became the germ of an idea that became the Library of Legends.
1: Julian is the first person we meet. How would you describe her character and her past? Uh, by that, I mean her past as set up in the opening chapters, since her real story takes time to emerge.
0: Well, I would say that at this point, she's very cautious. Um, she's living in a sort of a class-conscious academic society, and she's very much aware that she's only a poor scholarship student, and we understand that she has deliberately kept from forming close relationships with her classmates because her whatever it is that's gone on in her family history, she has been told to be, you know, um, to be cautious. Um, Yeah. Okay. And
1: how would you describe her as a personality, other than cautious? What What does she want in life?
0: So she wants very much to um, ensure her mother's safety. She's um, always been very protective of her mother. And she's also just, um, I think she's a very loyal friend, in that because she forms very few attachments, the few that she um, the few friends that she does make, she's um, she also feels very protective and responsible for them. Almost immediately, uh,
1: Leon runs into Liu Xiaming, uh known as Xiao, and a servant called Sparrow Chen. What can you tell us about Xiao?
0: So, at the start of the story, I wanted him to come across as, you know, carefree, He's accustomed to wealth, as though his privilege protects him even from, you know, the bombs that are falling. And it is very much how some of those students were, because in those days only the wealthy could send their children to university. So many of the of um, Liam's classmates were from the elite of China, but at the same time, um, Xiao sort of he's not too sure. What he wants in life, possibly because he's always had everything that he ever wanted and he's never thought about it very much, or maybe there's some other reason why he doesn't feel anchored.
1: And Chen, I'm asking about her as a character, a personality, and her place at the university.
0: So the university has staff and they have. Servants, And, in fact, some of the university servants also followed the campus into exile. And Sparrow Chen is a curiosity, because her story is that she used to work in Xiao's household. She was one of his house servants. And when Xiao went to university in a different city, um, she followed him, eventually, without his knowing or agreement. She just sort of shows up and gets a job with the university. And she's very devoted. She's very quiet. She stays out of the spotlight. But, you know, enough students w- um, wonder about her actual relationship with Xiao. She's, she's very mysterious.
1: These students soon set off as a group for the West, um, each carrying part of the Library of Legends. So tell us about the library. What is it, and why is the university so intent on saving it?
0: In the novel, The Library of Legends is a 500-year-old set of books, a sort of encyclopedia of all the myths and legends of China. It's unique and irreplaceable. It's a part of China's cultural heritage, which must not be destroyed or taken by the enemy. And at this point in time, you know, there's very strong feelings of patriotism um, amongst the students. And so they're just determined to protect it. It is their legacy. And, you know, when I wrote about the Library of Legends, I just thought it was a wonderful metaphor for um, sort of the cultural heritage of China and what it meant for them to be protecting it.
1: And what is it? What is in
0: it? In In the library, it's 147 books in the novel, it is. And it um, tells all the different stories. Each volume tells, um, has collected uh, different stories and myths and folklore and legends of China. And each of the students is asked to carry one of these volumes in their backpack and to learn about it.
1: Yes, exactly. And, um, and what is Li'an's volume and what does she learn from it early in the book?
0: So, well, Leanne carries um, the book, uh, I think it's called um, Romances Between Celestial Beings and Mortals. So, and one of the stories in that um, collection is called The Willow Star and the Prince. And that is actually a, a story that I made up, although it is pulled from A real Chinese folk tale called the Oxford and the Heavenly Weaver Girl. So the provenance of that—well, I come by the provenance honestly. And in the novel, as it turns out, the story of the willow star and the prince is not yet quite finished.
1: And Xiao's volume has something to do with fox spirits, which I think were also mentioned in your second book, right? Um, So tell us about those.
0: Well, in tree folklore, fox spirits are shapeshifters who live among mortals. Um, they enjoy sampling life as humans, if you will. So while Shao himself, I mean, there's no hint of him being a fox spirit, his identity and Sparrow's identity um, are in flux throughout the century. So I thought it was kind of apt for him to be carrying a book about um, shapeshifters.
1: There is indeed a wonderful fantasy element to this novel where um, people go back and forth, I guess, um, from celestial realms to human realms. Why did you include that element? It's also there in your earlier novels as well.
0: Yeah, Carolyn, I start out trying to write straight historical fiction, and I make sure that all the parameters, the dates, the timelines, and everything are accurate. But somehow, the supernatural just keeps nosing its way into my novels, possibly because um, all the stories my father used to tell me about our ancestors. Um, My father's family has a recorded genealogy of 36 generations, and he also, you know, told me a lot of the stories that have been passed down through the centuries, and that included... I had an ancestor who actually walked through a doorway into the land of immortals and became an immortal, and he saw a dragon, and I had another uh, ancestor who saw a ghost dancing across a roof, so on and on, and I think that's probably why I can't help it. Oh, I think it's
1: a wonderful element. I love that part of your novel and uh, thirty six generations. my god, that that's what I love about Chinese history, too. I mean, there's just so much of it. So for a historian like me, it's just perfect.
0: I always um I'm really sorry that when I was younger and my father was still alive, that I didn't bug him more um, about what life was like when he was when he was younger because it was another world. But, you know, I had no idea I'd end up writing
2: historical fiction. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Right, yeah. We we always, you know, there are all those family stories that when we're young, we tend to um, kind of go, oh, mom, really? (laughs) And then when we get older, we think, oh, I wish I had asked her more about that. (laughs) I kick myself every day. So, the Japanese army has established itself in Shanghai and is attacking Nanjing at the opening of the story. That's what prompts the students to be evacuated. But the road west is also far from safe. So, what conditions do the students encounter and how do they respond?
0: You know, an author friend of mine said to me that although she's been struggling to deal with having school aged children at home during the lockdown, at least she isn't having to shepherd them. Through a war zone, which is what these students did. Um, so, I'll just tell you a little bit about what my father told me, which is that they were hungry all the time. Um, they had to walk and it was winter time when they evacuated so they were cold all the time. They slept on floors uh, of temples when there was no other accommodations to be found. And they suffered from illnesses um, due to malnutrition mostly. And, um, there were air raid drills because at any time, wherever they were staying could be bombed. They could be attacked, um, from the air while they were on the road. I mean, they were going through a war zone. But actually, I, and I would say, well, but weren't you scared? Like, you know, was it horrible? And he said, oh, no, actually, we were kind of optimistic and trusting. <laughs> they, they were sharing their common hardships and they thought that as long as they listened to their professors, you know that they would come through it safely, and most of them really did. Um, it was just an amazing endeavor.
1: Yes, it is. I mean,
0: it's amazing even to think about
1: uh, sending a bunch of students who have presumably been living relatively sedentary lives off to walk a thousand miles.
0: Oh, Carolyn, it was actually even worse than that. There were um, students from middle school who were also evacuating. I mean, I don't get into that in the novel because that would have been kind of distracting. But um, a lot of these high schools, uh, middle schools, were boarding schools, too. And when the children were cut off from their families because of the war, um, those schools also had the duty of care to keep their students safe. So, yeah, there were teachers and school administrators, you know, walking with 12-year-olds across China.
1: That is truly
0: amazing. The early experience that Leon has
1: on the road is fairly positive. She makes friends and so on. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: I think you just said it there. She makes friends. Um, the common hardships are bonding the students, um, probably breaking down sort of the class, um, class barriers. And she also finds that Xiao, who sort of rescued her back in Nanjing, when the railway station they were at was bombed, um, seems to be showing some romantic interest in her, although she doesn't bear hope.
1: Because of the class difference, I assume.
0: Yeah, yeah. And because she's she's trying not to get too close, too, too close emotionally.
1: At a certain point in the novel, things do start to go south, as they tend to go in no- novels. Um There's a murder and an arrest, uh, and these are mentioned on the back covers, so we're not giving away any spoilers. Could you sketch the circumstances as they affect your three main characters?
0: Well, the murder is actually um, based on an incident from my father's own travels where one of his classmates was murdered, and they thought that it was for political reasons. So in this story, there is a murder, and it is for political reasons, and Leanne feels that she has been responsible for this, and she's really, really aware now of um, how her involvement might be putting her friends in danger. So she kind of shrinks back um, from, from her friends just when she needs them most. And then there's an arrest, which is um, what her closest friend actually is arrested Um, For being involved with the communist, with the communist students. Because back in those days, uh, the communists and the nationalists were really fighting for the hearts and minds of students. I mean, these students were going to be the next generation responsible for rebuilding China. So they were eager to recruit. And so it was dangerous sometimes for students to be involved politically. And this brings out um, Leanne's, um, uh, I guess you would call her efforts, her determination to try and save her friend. And that precipitates um, a decision that she makes, what she must do to save her friend. And this, as you noticed, um, also affects Xiao when he decides that uh, because he cares for her, that he's going to help her um, with his last, you know, with his effort.
1: So at this point, Lian pulls away from the group and heads for Shanghai with Xiao and Sparrow, in part because she's hoping to reconnect with her mother. Now, I know you can't tell us a lot about her mother, but what can you tell us about uh, both her mother and Lian's relationship with her mother?
0: Right. So I said before that Lian feels quite protective towards her mother, um, feels guilty for even having gone to university, even though that was her dream because it takes her away from her mother. Her mother, you'll be able, you'll have figured out by now, is mentally fragile because of a previous tragedy, and she's um, rather paranoid and, and worried because of the circumstances of um, her husband's death. So um, Leanne has extra motivation, apart from just her mother's safety, like physical safety, to go and find her. And it's not easy because she's not really sure where her mother is. yeah, so that was one of the real difficulties was how do you communicate when you your campus is a moving target? Nobody knows where to write to you. you can write you know care of the university and hope that the mail system follows um, uh, follows through, which you know more more often than you would believe it actually did, but you know. Her mother is also evacuating, fleeing from Beijing to get to the safety of Shanghai's uh, refugee communities. So her mother's on the move, too. So impossible to communicate.
1: So tell us a little bit about um, the conditions in Shanghai at this point. Um, we'll leave the characters out of it at this point because we don't want to say too much.
0: So the Second Sino-Japanese War created the most massive refugee crisis in Chinese history. And you sort of think of um, war as kind of, you know, moving down in a straight line, when actually I would say that um, the occupation of um, territories was more like an amoeba, sort of, you know, advancing and retreating. So people just never knew where they were safe. And Shanghai was one of the few known safe havens because of the international settlements. Which were legally um, foreign territory, not Chinese territory. So, in an area of about 16 square miles, millions of people were cramming in to Shanghai's international settlement uh, because the Japanese army could not invade there, not without also, you know, getting into war with the US and with Germany and with France and England and all the other countries that um, were part of the international settlement. So I believe at one point there were one and a half million refugees living in Shanghai in various refugee camps that were organized by the Red Cross and by some missionaries. And yeah, it was, it was a very difficult situation there. So this brings me
1: to another question. I mean, obviously, the stories that you heard from your dad uh, are part of your research, so to speak. But um, what kinds of research did you need to do? You live in Canada, so have you ever been to Shanghai? or what else did you do in order to fill in the historical parts of this novel?
0: Um, I've been to Shanghai a couple of times. All before I knew I was going to write historical fiction. Um, But in... Through the miracle of the internet, I could look up a lot, and there is actually a lot of documentation and scholarly uh, books about the refugee crisis in China during that time. So there, uh, I got to read a lot about it, and there were pictures, um, there were journals from um, missionary organizations. Uh, so. That was how I did, yeah, that was how I looked things up. Okay. Not to mention a lot of photography, because in Shanghai during that time, it was, um, there were a lot of foreigners living there, so they took pictures.
1: Oh, well, that's very convenient. Pictures are wonderful.
0: Okay. hmm
1: So, can you give us... Just a hint um, at the tale that forms kind of the backbone to this story, the Willow Star and the Prince, which, as you mentioned, you made up. What what is the story? The essence of the story.
0: Okay, so the story of the Willow Star and the Prince uh, happens to be, um, we'll say, it's a thousand-year-old myth, and it's about a beautiful serving maid from. who comes down to Earth, she's actually a star, and she's curious about the mortal world, so she comes down and she is seen by a young prince, and as they do, they fall in love. Unfortunately, the young prince is also a member of the extended royal family, and when the emperor dies, there is a struggle for power. And the new emperor basically massacres all rivals. This was true. This did used to happen. And so the prince is killed. And the star has to go up into the heavens where she cries so much that her stardust tears blur the skies, making celestial navigation impossible for the mortals. So the queen of heaven cuts the deal with her. If she stops crying, she will be given a chance. To meet with her prince again. And her, through various negotiations, the Willow Star agrees that, you know, if she can come back to this earth and be with her prince during various reincarnations and get him to recognize her as his true love, then they can both return to the stars. But unfortunately, this has been going on for a thousand years and she has not yet succeeded.
1: But that makes for a great story, and it leads right into my last question, which is, uh, what would you like readers to take away from the Library of Legends?
0: You know, when I wrote the story, it was before any of this pandemic had happened, and now readers are emailing me and saying how much they can relate to the uncertainty that the characters have to live through. Because we ourselves are living in a time of uncertainty. So I guess I would like readers to think about how the students themselves survive and get along by supporting each other, um, by being kind and considerate to each other, and by forming, you know, and this has made them a stronger community. And I hope that we can come out of this being better people and a better society, too.
1: That's a great message. This novel has just come out. Are you already working on something new?
0: Yes, I am, Carolyn, and I am very, very excited about it. Um, It takes place in World War I, and it takes place in Europe, and it does have future Chinese characters. Okay,
1: well, uh, let's be in touch when it comes out. Maybe we can talk again. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Janie.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast, Carolyn.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Janie Chang about the Library of Legends. Find out more about her at www.janiechang.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistric. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews, and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.